Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with 19 years' experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. also have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. We're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly radio show. We are right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m. You can go check out our website as well, moneymd.net, and click in the top right-hand corner and you can stream us. Uh, if you're out of town, we have a lot of folks out of town listening to us, Steve. That um, that's how they listen to us. Obviously, 12:30 doesn't reach all the way up to uh, sure, you know, uh, Minnesota. Do we have any clients in Minnesota? I'm not sure if we have any. I don't know if we do or not. Yeah, we have clients in about 40 states. Yeah. So. I'm not sure Minnesota is one of them, but that's a great way to stream us. Yeah, I have clients you know, in Chicago us. that listen, and they do it that way. Stream us is a great way. Another way is to download the TuneIn radio app onto your smartphone and listen to us just you know on your smartphone while you're walking around the house. You can also get the upgrade version, and I think it's called the pro version, for a few dollars. And then you can set up to record automatically. Mm-hmm. You'll have it on your phone. You can listen to them anytime. Yep. That's, that's an awesome way to do it. Easy way. Yeah. So email us if you want some sp- more specific instructions about how to do that. I had a client email me this past week, and I gave him those details. So you can reach us by email, too, at info at moneymd.net. We would love to hear from you. And check us out on our website, moneymd.net, where you can uh, link to us there and uh, send us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. Well, John, I think we have an awesome show lineup for today. Um, you know, very interesting stuff. I mean, we're going to start off talking about retirement investing the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there is there, a wrong way. There is a wrong way to do it, right? But this is interesting because it's a new article, new show, that uh, study that just came out talking about the, the, the method in which you invest your money over retirement. You know, whether you go conservative first. I mean, whether you go aggressive first and then conservative later on, which is the conventional way of thinking, or if you did the opposite, would that actually yield better results? Mm -hmm. It's pretty fascinating. It is an interesting topic, different way of looking at it. Yeah, they're actually giving some indication that it, you know, the way we've been traditionally thinking about retirement may be all backwards. Yeah, we'll see. We'll we'll dive into that one. It's interesting. Um, We're going to follow that up with a... uh, an article on uh, how scammers steal your tax return information. And we certainly have heard of Target in the news uh, recently with their, their issues. And, you know, I think identity theft is at the top of a lot of people's minds these days. And it sure is. Unfortunately, scammers are going after people's tax returns, and they're submitting information and getting tax refunds under that social security number. Yeah, that's a new twist I hadn't heard of before, so it's interesting. I mean, I'm, yeah, it'll be a great topic to yeah. uh, be careful of. Absolutely. About. We'll dive into that. We're going to finish off with um, a topic on uh, annuities. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the guarantee that is out there in the marketplace. A lot of people talk about uh Guaranteed annuities, and a lot of folks are actually attracted to that word guaranteed annuity. So we're going to look into that and um, kind of give a do a 101. Yeah, it's a confusing topic, so it's a great thing to uh, learn about and dive into. So that'll be good. 
All right, we're going to start off here, though, with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this is from uh, Time magazine. And uh, back in 2012, November the 26th to be exact, there was an issue of Time magazine which ran an article titled, Why Stocks Are Dead. And that was um, uh, by some pretty famous folks out there. They were really gloomy on the equity markets, money managers, a gentleman named Mohammed El Arin, who is with PIMCO. Um, and also Bill Gross with, with PIMCO as well. So um, bond, bond folks, um, and they know a lot about the markets. But interesting, from 11-26-12 to the close of trading on Friday, January the 10th of 2014, so a little bit over a year, the S&P 500 gained 34.2%. That's total return. So you think they missed the mark just a little bit? Just a little <laughs> bit, 34% return. You know, and that's reminiscent of the old article back from 1979 that said the death of equities, right? It was one of the headlines, I think, in it might have been in Time magazine. Um, but, you know, it, it tr- just comes back to the age-old truth that nobody can time the market. Nobody. Nobody can predict it. I mean, it. it's it's impossible. And these, these guys are out there are very well-known, um, very probably wealthy, uh, know a lot about the market and so forth, but they missed it. They really did miss it. You know, um, it just it just goes to prove that nobody has a crystal ball. The markets are unpredictable. When you think they've reached new highs, as a lot of people think now, you know, don't try to time it because it, it could go a lot higher. I yeah. mean, a lot of people thought 1995 or 1996 – the market had topped out after a couple good years, right? Mm-hmm. And it continued for another three years. Yes. So you just don't know. You, you don't really know what the market's going to do. Don't try to time it. Just be diversified is really our prescription of the day. All right. That leads up to our first topic here, and that is retirement investing the wrong way. Um, you know, John, there's a study out there that shows what you know about retirement investing could be all wrong. Hmm. Um, and this is an article out of the Wall Street Journal, just came out this past week from Ann uh, Turgensen. And it's interesting because, you know, the, the conventional wisdom that people have is that people just entering retirement should have a big portion of their savings, say 40 to 60 percent, invested in stocks, you know, maybe even more, and then uh, to help the nest eggs grow over time, right? And then as they age, all but the wealthiest should gradually reduce that equity exposure to protect against a 2008-type market decline. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I mean, um, it's, it's what most of the conventional wisdom is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, we, we all know that's instinctively true, but this is an interesting study which questions that conventional wisdom and has some compelling data to support their claim. Of course, I think the difference may be in the assumptions that you make. So Mm -hmm. we'll dig into that a little bit more here in a second. Yeah. Now, you know, a study in this month's Journal of Financial Planning, which you and I, you know, look at it, it calls um, into question that advice uh, about taking, you know, 60 percent of the um, of your money and and starting out with that. Basically, the report finds that those who take the opposite approach by reducing equity exposure right after retirement and then actually gradually increasing it over time are more likely to have their money last longer. So, again, a different twist than what we typically have heard. Yeah, that's totally backwards, you know. Um, I mean, they call it taking the U-shaped path is what they call it. And, of course, you know, you, you start off with a high percentage in stocks while you're accumulating your retirement, right? And, and then as you get older and you get into retirement or near retirement, you typically – drop that down a little bit, um, but they're suggesting here you drop it 
way down. They say those who start retirement with 20 or 30 percent in stocks and end up with 50 to 70 percent near the end of their lifetime, they can withdraw 4 percent from their portfolio per year and give themselves annual raises to compensate for inflation over 30 years, even in the worst market scenarios. Mm -hmm. And so what they're claiming is, I mean, they ran a a 10,000 different simulations. So they ran a lot of simulations. They assume an average rate of return of 6.5% for stocks, uh, 2.4% for bonds. And so what they're saying is, in contrast, those people who keep 60% in stocks throughout retirement, and or who taper down to 30% in stocks from 60% over the course of retirement are likely to run out of money in about 28 years, according to this study. And in five, 5% of the worst-case scenarios, they're saying they would run out of money in after 28 years. So, you know, this is a professor of retirement income at the American College of Financial Services in Bern, uh, Pennsylvania. And so I think it's interesting you know, of course, I think you also have to consider there's also the reality of what someone emotionally is able to do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, can you imagine an 80-year-old who would spend down his account and then make the move later on in life to go up in risk to 75% stocks? Yeah, there's not many conversations we have with folks in their 70s and 80s that actually want to increase the percentage, nah. usually to be more conservative. So this is definitely against, you know conventional wisdom out there it is and i think it's also against emotional you know ability i Mm -hmm. mean for people to do that so it doesn't matter what i think paper says you know what people can really do makes a difference too and so i don't think there'd be any advisors that would go along with that move and even if a retiree was good with it so from a practical standpoint i think that would be a very difficult strategy Mm -hmm. to implement um it might be similar to telling a retiree to go 100 percent in stocks in march of 2009 when the market was down, what, 58%, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody was scared that we were heading into a depression. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, we might know that it's probably the right move, but there are not many people that have the guts to pull the trigger on that, I think, when their t- time comes. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, a, a lot of these studies, there, there's two answers to these questions. One of them is a calculation answer. The other one is an emotional answer. Calculation, right. they say it's better. Emotionally, you know, maybe not so much. Just not um, practical. Yeah, and, you know, the, the American College of Financial Services, you mentioned, came up with this study. But, you know, recommendations were similar um, by a gentleman named Mr. Uh, Fall and co-author Michael uh, Kitkiss. He's a director of research at an advisory group out of Maryland. Uh, they ran the numbers over a 20- and 40-year period, and uh, they actually used a lower annual return than, than above. And, um, you know, they had a similar, you know, type um, analysis that came out of that. So the so results have kind of been confirmed, mm-hmm. you know. A couple with, people looking at it. But, again, I think your your point about the psychological challenges and emotional challenges are, are huge in this, you know, conversation. They don't really address that. No, they really don't. And I think there's other ways to accomplish the same results that we'll talk about here in a second when we get back from the break. But, um, you know, very interesting study. I mean, it really changes, opens your eyes and it makes does. you think about, you know, retirement and your allocation a little differently and and say, okay, there may be another way to doing it. So we'll dig into that some more when we get back from the break. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. 
I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. And we are continuing our discussion here before the break about retirement investing the wrong way, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people uh, are under the assumption, everybody is really, that, you know, when you're in retirement, John, you're supposed to start off with your money invested maybe half or more in equities. And then as you get older and later in retirement, you're supposed to scale that down to, you know, a lower number, you mm-hmm. know, maybe 25 or 30% in equities. Um, later on in retirement as you're spending your money down. But this is an article out of the Wall Street Journal, and it's a study that was done uh, by the Journal of Financial Planning, I believe. And what they're saying is that that's all wrong, that it's you know totally backwards, and that, that perhaps you need to start off with your money invested very conservatively, mm-hmm. maybe only 30% in stocks, and then increase that later on in retirement to maybe 70% in stocks. Yeah, it's definitely the a different way that most people do it. It's crazy. And they ran 10,000 different iterations, simulations on this, um, using a 6.5% return for stocks, 2.5% for bonds, roughly. And they said the results show that in the worst-case scenarios, your money lasted longer if you did it the opposite way, if you started off conservative and went more aggressive later. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy. I mean, they're just looking at data, right? I mean, right. so they're one sure. of the things that you pointed out earlier, which was very valid, is the um, emotional side of this t- discussion. We're that talking about big, just data here. That's exactly right. Sometimes the numbers tell you one thing, and and you know maybe even slightly so. I think this is a very slight. It is. Improvement. It's not a huge. You know, when you really look at the data, which I did look at the actual article out of the out of the uh, journal of Financial Planning, a very long, detailed study. And uh, it was just a slight improvement. So, you know, you need to kind of put this in context. But, yeah, the findings indicate that investors may be better off with equity allocations that follow kind of a U-shaped pattern over their lifetimes, according to these guys. And so what they're saying is the low point, it would be the years immediately preceding and following retirement. So you're higher in equities and you get lower and then you get higher in equities later on, which is – you know, totally opposite of the gradual downslope mm-hmm. that most target date refunds, target date retirement funds use. Um, so these are pretty shocking results that uh, considering that everyone naturally thinks you need to get more conservative as you get further in retirement. Uh, but I think, you know, one of the flaws in the study is that it it looks at going very conservative over time and assumes a very low return for stocks in general. I'm not sure today's world the bonds are going to give you 2.4%. I'm not sure stocks are going to return only 6.5%. I mean, historically, stocks have done better than that, right? Sure. You know, they've returned 9 or 10% over time, and bonds are at the lowest rates, you know, in history just about. Um, so I wonder if they looked at, you know, the more uh, a bigger spread between bonds and stocks, if we wouldn't see a little bit different little results, bit different results. Yeah. You know, one of the advantages that the authors say of this U-shaped approach is that it provides better downside protection in the years right after retirement. Um, you know, when retirees are most vulnerable to financial losses. And so if a bear market occurs, then a portfolio can quickly be depleted by both market losses as well as withdrawals. Yeah, that's right. You know, and they also included in this in this article a survey that was done of retirees uh, in their 60s showing the percentage they have in fixed income and stocks. 
And it's a little bit shocking, John, because what they show here is that 51% of retirees have 0% in stocks. Yeah. All in fixed income. And to me, that's a disaster for retirees. Well, they, and they may not have market risk, but they have inflation risk now. They do. Right? They do. So, I mean, they're not keeping up with inflation if you're all in fixed income in today's world, at least. I haven't seen fixed accounts that were doing that consistently. And, I mean, in fact, they only show that if you look at the numbers here, there's only about 30% that have more than 40% in stocks. And, you know, does that mean 70% have less than 40% in stocks? Uh, I think that's that's a problem for today's retirees. You know, they need to wake up. They got to keep up with inflation. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, but then they go on to talk about the U-shape approach, and they say that by contrast, a bear market in the second half of retirement is usually far less damaging because the portfolio, even if it wasn't heavily invested in stocks to start with, has already benefited from the years of growth um, and the returns that were good. Yeah, and uh, you know, of course, if stocks fare well in the early part of retirement, those who use the conventional approach would certainly come out ahead. Still, um, you know, it, it may be worth trading some of the upside potential, is what these authors are saying, to secure higher odds for a sustainable retirement income. Um, again, it comes back to um, kind of looking at the emotional side of this, and his findings, um, the findings in these studies indicate that investors may be better off with the equity allocations that follow you know, a U-shaped path over their lifetimes um, with the low point in the years immediately preceding and following retirement rather than the gradual downward slope that we typically see in most target date funds. Yeah, I would say, John, the real key to having security in retirement with your investments and your income is to have some flexibility. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you have enough in fixed or cash to get you through a few years then you can leave your stock portion, your portfolio alone during the down markets, and you can give it time to recover. You need to be in good enough shape in retirement to have the flexibility to suspend your withdrawals from the stock part of your your retirement plan during the downtimes. Um, studies have shown that if you can just adjust your withdrawals or suspend it, then that will vastly increase your probability of success. And it also helps tremendously if you're only withdrawing 3 or 4% mm-hmm. instead of, say, 5%. So I, I don't think this study really takes that into account. And so my prescription for investing in retirement, and I think it's yours too, is to follow a well-diversified but a more conventional approach um, that that's weighted toward equities. But make sure you have enough flexibility in your situation that you can back off on your withdrawals, you know, for a time if necessary. Yeah, no, I agree with you. You know, I think, um, you know, this, this is good research, good data, good, good data point. Um, in, in trying to predict the markets, what they're going to do in the future. I, I think you're right. Diversified portfolios, you know, what we saw in 2008 when the markets were down, if people could, um, you know, not take inflation adjustments and maybe reduce their withdrawals a little bit, a little flexibility. Um, yep. You know, they were able to get through it and, and have done pretty well since. So it, um, you know, there's a couple of different ways of doing it out there, but the gradual, you know, taper down seems to be still in the industry, probably the most popular way to do it. Yeah. And I think emotionally that's the one people can handle too. So, but it's a very interesting stuff nonetheless. So, all right. Well, that leads up here to our question of the week. Yeah, this question has to do with 401ks. Um, unfortunately, some people use 401ks as an emergency fund, right? Yeah. We, we see that. We see the studies out there, the, the percentage of people that have loans against them. Um, and so the question is, is, should I take a loan from my 401k to pay off 
my credit card debt. And on the surface, it sounds like, yeah, you know, that's a good idea. Seems like it. Pay off the credit card debt, you know, pay myself back, you know, three or four or five percent interest. The issue with that is, is, is when you do take a loan from your 401k and, and you leave your job, which everybody leaves their job at some point, right? Right. Sometimes unexpectedly with um, being laid off, you have to pay that money back within 60 days or you're going to be, you're going to have a big tax bill and a penalty associated with it. That's right. So generally we would say, no, don't, you know, leave that alone. Um, the other thing that you're doing is you're unplugging that money from the market. So yep. you get two things yeah. that are kind of going, working against you there. So, um, and even if, you know, you're, you're, you're paying five or 6% on your credit cards and maybe even higher, um, you know, you are earning money, money in the market. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you're earning more than that. But regardless, I mean, your, your 401k plan is your retirement plan. I mean, it, it's designed to be untouchable. Right. I mean, that's the reason why you can't take money out before age 59 and a half without a tax penalty. Right. Um, if you get in the habit of dipping into that to bail yourself out on credit cards or to bail yourself out on anything else in life, um, you've breached that untouchable status. And all of a sudden you're going to find yourself, you know, you might bail yourself out of credit cards and, and but then you haven't fixed the problem. That's right. Right. So you're going to be back in the same boat in a worse shape because you're going to have not only the loan in your 401k plan, now you're going to have credit cards again because you're going to build them back up. Yeah, probably it's a spending issue. Let's be honest. Yes. It's a spending issue. That's right. So, you know, the, the, the regardless of what the numbers say, sometimes you have to get to the heart of the issue and forget about the numbers and deal with the real heart of the issue, yeah. and that is your spending. And leave your 401k alone. Leave it untouchable because you've already shown you don't have the discipline, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. You know, I, hate, I mean, some people are in tough shape. Don't yep. get me wrong. They have medical issues. A lot of things can happen in life. And I'm not here to cast blame, but I'm just saying, you know, chances are you're going to be in a worse shape if you breach that that you know retirement plan. Yeah, and you're also messing with the eighth wonder of the world, right? Exactly. Compound interest. Compound interest. I mean, if you can compound this over you know decades, and when you unplug that, it makes a big difference to what your retirement balances will be, and thus your retirement. So try to leave that alone. Get that emergency fund in place. Yeah, just set up a plan to pay off your cards. You know, start with the smallest one first, build up some momentum, yep. and you know, free up some money in your budget so you can start putting money consistently against those cards. Get them paid off. You know, do it the old-fashioned way. All right, good good question. That leads us up here to our break. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages and junior news. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. And we are going to lead off our second segment here um, with uh, another topic, and that is how scammers steal your tax return. Mm. Now, John, this is a twist that I hadn't really heard on identity theft. You know, mm-hmm. I mean... You understand them stealing your credit cards and your personal information and, you know, your your birth date and the, all that kind of stuff. But I never thought of them just like stealing your tax return yeah. in terms of the way they describe it here. Yeah, you know, this comes from Fox Business. And, um, you know, everyone knows not paying your taxes, right, can get you in trouble with Uncle Sam. Yeah. But, you know, as it turns out, the same is true if you if you do pay your taxes. And this is where the, the scamming comes in. And, 
you know, in the, in the past three years, tax identity fraud has really skyrocketed. According to um, the Federal Trade Commission, complaints about this relatively new crime have tripled since 2010. And in fact, last year, they made up almost half of the total number of consumer complaints the commission received. Yeah, I mean, tax identity theft, you know, of course, occurs when somebody steals your personal information and then they um, maybe apply for a job using your Social Security number. But here they file a phony tax return in your name in order to claim a refund. Hmm. So then the refund gets sent to the fraudster. So somehow, I guess, they change your address as well. Um, And then you're fruitlessly checking your mailbox for your return and... They've already filed for your, your yeah. uh so it's yeah, it's a it's a big issue. It impacts millions of people every year, costs the government billions of dollars in tax refunds that should have never been paid. Yeah, and for those affected it's it's an absolute nightmare. Once the IRS sends a refund to the crook, your legitimate refund request, it'll be denied. And after all, you know, according to the agency's computers, a refund has already been issued to you. So they're just kind of going through systematic checks and you know, correcting the problem is often a frustrating, drawn-out process, so you have to file a form explaining to the IRS that you're a victim of ID theft and provide proof that the individual, uh, that the Social Security number does not um, indeed belong to you. So, you know, you got to give them some proof to a form. Uh, the IRS must then review your complaint, which means it could take months for you to get your refund. So you got to prove who you are to the IRS is what it boils down to. Yeah, they're not going to take your word for it. No. <laughs> they don't take your word for anything. Yeah, becoming a tax fraud victim, I mean, could also result in getting a letter from the IRS charging you with tax delinquency and not reporting all of your income that you earned last year because your return didn't include the second job at <laughs> ABC Appliance Store, which the other guy works at, yeah. you know, or the scamster works at maybe. Um, you know, now you have to prove that someone else got the job, that job, using your Social Security number and that you know, took home income associated with it. So, I mean, the the bad news is the fraud could get a lot worse. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a good chance that the thief who has your, you know, your personal identifying information will use it to hack into your, your bank account, um, open up credit cards, uh, and just make your life miserable. And, you know, there are cases where crooks have continued to file bogus tax returns with the same Social Security number they used in the past. So, you know, once you've been hit with tax identity fraud, the IRS will issue you a PIN uh, that you have to include with your uh, file when you do the return. So this basically tells the agency that you're a taxpayer s- assigned to that Social Security number. So it's just another step once you you know you get past of you know getting them to believe you are who you are. Yeah, these analysts say that this is happening a lot more than we're being told. And you know, I think of it logically, and it's probably because the government's not very good at tracking down people. Yeah. You know, I mean, credit card it's, companies, if it's big enough, they'll go after you, right? Yeah. Well, the IRS, you know, let's face it. I mean, they should go knock on the NSA's door, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. They should, but they don't cooperate between agencies, yeah. and you know, chances of them actually going after somebody are probably not very high. So I guess it's become a target. I mean, shockingly, according to these analysts, I mean, there are instances where prisoners are filing tax returns using stolen information and having the money sent to someone else on the outside. 
You know, they even know that if they keep the amount under nine thousand dollars, that avoids the IRS's red flags. Yeah, that's amazing. It's it really it's a is. shame that people out there doing this type of stuff. He also claims that there are classes that, believe it or not, uh, they're held in the basement of churches that teach you how to use TurboTax or H and R Block to file fraudulent tax returns. And uh, filing electronically enables a scammer to process a large number of returns in a relatively short period of time. And, you know, to, pr- to help protect against this fraud, request that the tax refund be put on your debit card, right? This means that you can avoid the awkwardly, you know, possibility of getting caught when trying to cash a, a, a cash cash a check that they send you. So gotcha. you have them send it automatically to your, to your debit um, card, your account. Um, that's a pretty good thing. And, and the reason this works, um, the analysts say, is that Congress changed the mandate of the IRS. It used to be an enforcement agency. Now the focus is on customer service. They got a bad rap, obviously, uh, with some, some recent press. And under this change, he says, speeding up the time it takes to issue a refund is a top priority at the agency, which can make it hard to spot potentially fraudulent returns. But, you know, there are a number of things that you should you should do right um, to try to reduce to protect your identity. That's yeah. right, absolutely. And so here are a couple of things that uh, this article talks about, which are, which are good. Closely guard your personal information, especially your social security number. Don't keep your social security card in your wallet. Keep it in a secure location. So if your wallet's stolen, you know you're going to open yourself up to some some big risk. Yeah, some of these are kind of obvious, and I'm sure you're doing some of these. I mean, at least we are, but but some aren't. I mean, it says shred all your documents. Of course, changing your containing your personal information including count numbers dates of birth etc so buy a good shredder mm-hmm. okay but know your tax preparer you know don't just walk into an office off the street and ask them to do your taxes um because some tax preparation services are not trustworthy mm-hmm. so be sure to check the professional has the proper safeguards to ensure your information secure but also ask for referrals you know, I mean, talk to somebody. Personally, I think if you're going to a tax professional, you should probably go off a referral, right? Mm-hmm. Ask somebody else, you know. You don't just pick somebody out of the yellow pages or somebody off the street. I mean, they may have just hung out a shingle for the purpose solely of collecting information they warn here. Yeah, so a better approach is to get a reference. Um, take the time to add a security code so that, only you can access your computer, your laptop, your phone, other electronic devices. So if you file, you know, a tax return by computer, yeah, um, just make sure it's encrypted. Yeah, that's right. So if you if you're out there doing this by yourself, you know, if you're you're basically opening up your computer, um, these electronic devices, uh, you know, if you have Wi-Fi uh, access, such as a cafe or hotel lobby, these public hotspots, they're they're favorite places for ID thieves. I mean, they're ways that they can can crack into your computer i saw an article um or actually something on shark tank recently about the com- your computer um uh camera that people yeah. can hack into your computer and watch you through your computer without you even knowing it yeah that's so unbelievable just put a piece of tape over it if you don't use it. <laughs> i think that's probably the best advice you yeah, cover that thing up yeah you know and here's one of my pet peeves and that is sending your return through the u.s postal service um, by just putting it in your box, mm-hmm. you know, people go out and they put it by the mailbox, they put it in the mailbox, raise the flag up. Well, what you're doing is you're, you're like sending a message to the would be thieves that, you know, here it is, you know, beginning of April and you got your flag up, 
they know, well, it's tax return season. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a good chance there's a tax return in there that's got all your personal information. Yep. All they got to do is ride by and just grab it out of your box. Yeah. I mean, we personally, we don't even send our checks through our own box. We put it in a closed box, you mm-hmm. know, and drop it off. Yeah, where P.O. Gonna, box. Yeah, so we're going to send a check. There's nobody, because we had that happen. Somebody stole, we have to, yeah. stole a check out of our box. So Yeah, and the other thing you can do in this area is we talked about last week, annualcreditreport.com. Go look at your credit report out there. You yeah, can see, see what's happening. People are opening stuff up under your name or not. So yeah. Important topic. Yes, it is. No doubt. It's that time of year, too. Okay, that leads up here to our prescription of the week. Yeah, this is a good time, um, Steve, to, to look at beneficiaries on your accounts. I mean, you it know, is. a lot of times um, folks don't look at their at their accounts on their 401ks, IRAs, um, TOD type of accounts. You know, a divorce, um, you ought to be looking at it, death in the families, a, a new, new birth, a new uh, child being born, changing jobs. I mean, there's a lot of different reasons why you would want to look at this, but this is a good time to go back and and check them out because it makes a huge impact down the road. If you don't have contingent beneficiaries, maybe that ought to be something you ought to look at. Yeah. Um, maybe you're leaving it to an ex-wife. That's probably not what you want to do. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> or an ex-husband, I, you know. There's, I suspect, unless you're compelled to. That's, that's right. right. Yeah, I mean, it's just like updating your will, too. Mm-hmm. You need to look at that every few years, right? Um, you don't. So you want to keep all your beneficiaries up to date. You want to keep your, your account information up to date. Um, with your life. So just, you know, yearly, now's a good time, beginning of the year, take a look at all that stuff and make sure you have everything, you know, exactly the way you want it on all your life insurance policies. And, you know, don't forget about those retirement plans at work and those kind of things that you tend to not think of. Yep. So, all right, good topic. All right, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net. Or give us a call, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back at the business. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. And we are starting off our last segment here with the uh, a new topic, and that is three logical insights into the notion of guaranteed annuities. Yeah, this is going to be kind of a, an annuity 101 class a little bit, you know, yeah. talking about it. This is from Think Advisor, um, which is a uh, just a website out there, and just talks about you know annuities. And, and um, I don't know about you, Steve, but when I sit down with someone who has an annuity or um, – they generally don't understand what it is. No, um, no, it's very rarely that I sit down with somebody that understands. Yeah, I mean, what they, they have, have all these, building. you know, terminology guarantees. Um, the, the 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 products are very complicated. Which, you know, if you talk to Dave Ramsey, it's rule number one is understand a little bit about what you're investing in. And I sat down with a client this last week that had an annuity from back a couple of years ago, and it was a very thick contract. <clears throat> and she was asking me questions on it, and. So I'm going to have to look at it to, to research it. Each annuity is a little bit different, but they are very complex products. It's very rarely when I dig into one that the client or the person understands what they bought, you know, what the return is, mm-hmm. what the upside, downside is, what the rules are yeah. within it. Most of them don't understand. Yeah. Matter of fact, I sat down with, well, I had a client this week that trying to remove the retirement plan, and unfortunately... There is a very 
nasty little surrender charge in mm-hmm. there that was buried, buried in the, in the fine print. They didn't even know they had a group variable annuity. Mm-hmm. They just thought there were funds. And uh, yeah. lo and behold, they, they didn't know they owned an annuity, essentially. Yeah. Well, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, this is, um, you know, annuities are uh, a big segment of the market. I mean, we're not huge believers in them. They're right for some people. You have to evaluate them on your own circumstances and, and make sure you understand and the people you're dealing with are explaining them well. But, you know, this this um, article goes on to say, you know, if, if um, you know, annuity products were more beneficial to clients than just a, you know, plain market investment, this guy is saying that all insurance companies would uh, go bankrupt because they couldn't make enough spread between actual market returns and returns on the annuity contracts. Basically, an annuity is a contract with an insurance company, right? You give your money to an insurance company, and many times, not always, but many times they'll take that invested in the stock market. There's just additional cost and fees associated with it. Yeah, and I guess his point is don't expect a higher return on an annuity than you would get out in the marketplace mm-hmm. outside of an annuity. But annuities do offer some some guarantees mm-hmm. and some tools inside of annuity that you can't get other places. That's so right. they, they do satisfy a need um, in certain circumstances. There's some things you can do with annuity that you can't do in the, that's know, right. in other things. And we're going to actually tackle that word guaranteed because, um, you know, it seems these days that insurance companies find some way to attach the word guaranteed to almost every product, no matter the form, shape, or benefit of the, the product provides. And, and the insurers know that as long as a broker can indirectly use the word guaranteed with potential investors, um, you know, products will get sold. People like that that word um, guaranteed. So what does logic tell us about the broad analysis of most guaranteed annuities? We're going to kind of go through a couple of them here. Yeah, um, just to, to explain a little more about annuities in general. I mean, annuity is a defined – well, it's defined as a legal contract between a policy – um, holder, uh, the consumer, and an insurance company. So a guaranteed annuity is when the insurance company promises either a specific interest rate or income for a defined period of time. Even, even though they can seem very complex, in simple terms, there are only two broad types of annuities. There are fixed annuities and there are variable annuities um, based on the security laws. And, you know, a variable annuity can can lose money, right? It can go up and down because it's it's got fun something mm-hmm. that looks like funds in it, separate accounts inside the annuity uh, that go up and down with whatever vehicle they're invested in, stocks or bonds. And a fixed annuity, uh, by definition, usually cannot lose money. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has a floor under it and it is fixed in some way. So, but a broker has to have a security license to sell variable annuities. Not the case with fixed annuities. Um, you know, those can be sold by just an insurance with an insurance license. So logically, security laws do help us to clarify some between the two types of annuities, fixed annuity and variable annuity. Yeah, and so the, the fixed annuity here, the guaranteed fixed annuity, it's easily considered one of the safest investments, um, similar to CDs and U.S. Treasuries. Um, but, you know, there's some issues um, with generic fixed annuities that many investors and, you know, some advisors don't realize, such as the the higher the stated guaranteed interest rate on a fixed annuity, the longer the surrender charge lockup period. So, you know, you look at a lot of these annuities and you're in them for, you know, typically a minimum of five years, sometimes seven. We see 10 years out there as well. So you're giving up liquidity associated with these annuities. So uh, that's one of the downsides. The other um, things a lot of people don't realize is a lower stated guaranteed interest rate may or may not result in a shorter surrender period. So just because it has a low, you know, guarantee interest rate doesn't mean that you're going to can get it in a year or two years. 
still maybe five, seven, or even ten years. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's true. Um, and the the other thing that's kind of a misconception here is high guaranteed interest rates. Um, when we're in a low interest rate environments, they're usually first year guarantees only. Right. So they'll they'll throw a teaser rate out there of you know guaranteed five percent. Well, the next year it drops down to one percent or something. So you've got to read the fine print. That's yeah, there where, could be bonuses too. Absolutely, and then a lot of times bonuses are. Um, are put on there. And the the fourth fact here about, you know, fixed annuities is nothing in life is free. I mean, fixed annuities charge fees in addition to the hidden float spread of the stated interest rate guaranteed in the contracts. And clients need to keep in mind that insurance companies have to make money with their investments over and above the stated yields or they they couldn't stay in business. So, um, you know, investors need to be careful with the stated high interest rate guarantees because they're usually limited to, to one or two years only. I mean, there's not you're not going to find a fixed annuity out there for five or six or seven percent typically over the life of the contract no, in today's low rate no, environment. It just no. doesn't exist. Yeah, I think, you know, two or three percent, you know, it's pretty much what mm-hmm. you can expect today in a fixed annuity. But um well then there's also variable annuities and a guaranteed variable annuity usually it offers the assurance of income for life for a certain period of time. So most of them are sold as well, they're, they're, people understand them as a guaranteed 6 or 7% annuity with the idea that the investor is guaranteed to get a 6 or 7% return. Well, nothing could be further from the truth because, by law, a variable annuity can't guarantee a rate of return mm-hmm. and still be deemed a variable annuity. So, you know, there are some major misunderstandings about guaranteed variable annuities. It, what they're guaranteeing is a withdrawal rate. You know, they're guaranteeing an income stream to some degree. Yeah, and and so, you know, many investors think that the guarantee is for the rate of return. It's not. I mean, it's 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 the, the withdrawal rate that they're getting. And so people are m- misinformed on that. And quite frankly, you know, they're probably, you know, the, the way that's presented a lot of times, guaranteed 6%, people infer that it's, it's the return piece of it. And the other thing which people may miss is that there's no risk in a guaranteed variable annuity. And logic would tell you that there is always risk associated with any product, uh, whether it's in the form of market risk or, or, or lost opportunity risk um, in, a, in a different option. So that's another kind of thing with variable annuities people don't look at. Another one is, you know, all an investor contributes and earns in the product is guaranteed for income withdrawal. And that, that simply isn't true either. Um, you know, as most insurance companies only guarantee the client's original contribution. So a few will, you know, provide value upticks net of their high contract or add-on rider fees, uh, assuming that the investor leaves the contract in force for a period of time. So there's a lot of a lot of requirements that you have to, to meet in order for this to, to work out for you long term. Yeah, and then another misconception a lot of times is that there are no surrender charges to redeem the variable annuity from the investments. Um, Again, this is usually false. I mean, there are no-load annuities where you can get the money out at any time. Uh, So that is true if you have a no-load annuity, but, uh, you know, many annuity products, they offer guaranteed income, and they lock it up, you know, for many years that you can't get it out without a a surrender charge. Mm -hmm. So you have to understand what the charges are in the annuity and if there are surrender charges. Yeah, and this guy goes on to say he believes that annuity guarantees uh, somewhat, you know, bend the truth a little bit when they're marketed and sold. Um, have you ever analyzed what I call the, the, the doom and gloom sales pitch and what logic says would happen? Well, you know, if insurance companies invest their accounts in, in the same marketplace as everyone else does, meaning that if we did get into a doom and gloom and Armageddon happens, 
guarantees on their products are worthless as well. I mean, yeah, if the insurance company goes belly yeah, up, I mean, it's guaranteed by the insurance company. Whatever guarantees are, it's the insurance company. That's right. But if there's an Armageddon situation where you lose your money in the market and the market goes to zero, I mean, most of those guarantees are going to zero as well. There's just not a, enough capital in the system to be able to come back and, and support that. So, you know, logic tells us that for any you know insurance product created and sold, the insurance company, they make money on it, um, which they good, they should. It's capitalism. It's okay. Um, so, you know, where does that leave the client and the investor? And, and I think the key here, Steve, is when you, when you go into any product, any way that you invest, ask a lot of questions, understand it. You know, the person that is, that you're working with has to, as Dave Ramsey says, have a heart of a teacher, explain things, talk about it. Don't, you know, talk about the commissions and the fees and, and be upfront with those type of conversations. Otherwise, you may not be getting what you think you're getting. Yeah, and just make sure you're, you're dealing with somebody that's reputable, that you can trust. Read the prospectus. You know, they give you all that documentation for a reason. The answers are in there if you read it carefully. Mm-hmm. And that's what you really need to do with any financial product. Okay, well, that brings us up to a close for this week's edition of Money MD with John and Steve. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. There are more prescriptions for your financial health. And do check us on our website, moneymd.net. And email us your questions. We would love to hear from you. You can email us uh, directly at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. And stay tuned for Doug Allen and the Spirit of Racing coming right up. Have a good one. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC.